Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us, or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Team, welcome to the Freedom Hunt. Buck Sexton here. Great to have you with me as always. Got a lot to talk about today. We will be getting into uh, discussions about, well, the DOJ in a settlement with the Tea Party for the previous targeting of the Tea Party by the IRS. Of course, a lot on the GPS fusion, Russia collusion mess. We'll get into that in just a moment. Uh, some new re- new uh, revelations and allegations about sexual harassment, including one that uh, really got me a bit fired up. Uh, that's coming on later in the show. And uh, we will talk about, uh, I think as well, the opioid speech, opioid epidemic speech that President Trump gave today. I watched the whole thing live as it happened. I'll give you my thoughts on that and uh, everything else that happens to come our way. But, you know, I've been watching very closely as the Democrat media tries to uh, process and deal with the very difficult, the very difficult truth that the main document used to start a massive federal investigation, that the, the centerpiece of an enormous media narrative. I, I can't even imagine how many if you added up how many thousands of hours on, yes, the broadcast and cable networks, but also on the Internet and websites and, you know, webcams and live streams and Facebook Live and If you are anybody in left-wing journalism, you have been running with this story about Russia collusion for a long time. I think you could point to a whole bunch of journalists who have, by and large, staked whatever is left of their reputations on it. And now we find out that one candidate for the presidency, Hillary Clinton, Paid her DNC, her her political aides and associates, they paid for this for this dossier. Now I know that's not news. We've we've been discussing that since the story broke. But you watch them as they try to handle the information, as they come up with a spin to it, because it just it doesn't sit well. I'm sure a lot of you are like, well, that's that's gonna be a tough one for them to just wish away. And I've gone through some phases. You know, people, what, there's the seven stages of grief. I, I have the, the three stages of fake news-itis. Uh, that's what I'm going through right now. Or suffering, from fa- suffering as a result of the fake news. And you have the initial stage. It's only three stages. Shock at the scale of their dishonesty. So shock at the dishonesty. 
outrage at the hypocrisy and then dark mockery of how preposterous they are. So it's it's uh, dishonesty uh, and then hypocrisy and then mockery. That, those are the way that's how I deal with this, uh, because it's just hard to imagine anyone with a straight face at this point telling us that, oh, they they just didn't know. You know, the senior Democrats didn't know that millions of dollars were being spent on an information operation meant to make sure Hillary, who was under a legitimate federal criminal investigation while running for president. That. This was going to be the way they turned it all around and made sure that Hillary won. And they didn't know about it. They knew nothing about it. If you were running for, you know, town council, if you were running for chief dog catcher in your neighborhood and it was a tough race against your opponent and there was somebody out there who you were paying money to who just happened to have information that would completely knock your opponent out of the race, if true, I think you'd know about it. I, I don't think this was just getting swept under the rug. This isn't uh, a an anonymous tip into an, an email box that nobody was reading. I mean, I mean, come on, everybody. Right. We all know this. And yet they can't escape this. They, they're going to try to say, oh, well, you know, we didn't know. And that's just a delay, because the more you think about it and the more information comes out. Oh, no, they knew they knew. When I say they, I don't know who exactly, but important people in the Democrat Party were aware and knew all about this. Okay, so you have that. And then you also now have a a shift in the narrative. Something has changed as well. You had actually happened to be uh, over uh, at at a cable network visiting some friends and, and saw uh, DNI, former DNI clapper. And I'm like, oh, okay. So he's auditioning for his role as the next paid former government uh, Clinton mouthpiece over at CNN. And clapper was on Aaron Burnett show last night. Now this is a former DNI. Now he's a very pro Clinton guy and says terrible, says terrible things about Trump all the time. So he's an anti-Trump, never Trump, former, I don't know if you call him deep state, but former federal bureaucrat for sure. Some of you are like, oh, he's deep state. But I'm just saying. And here's what he had to say about the dossier and the funding. of. I mean, this was pretty this was pretty wow last night on TV. With respect to the dossier itself, the key thing is it doesn't matter who paid for it. It's what what the dossier said and the extent to which it was it's uh, it's corroborated or not. We had some concerns about it from the standpoint of its sourcing, which we couldn't corroborate. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, some of the substantive, some of the substantive content—not all of it—but some of the substantive content of the dossier, we were able to corroborate in our intelligence community assessment, which mm. from other sources, in which we had very high confidence. So, level. when the president just refers to it as fake dossier, that is false. Uh, I I don't think that's that, that is the accurate characterization for the entirety of the dossier. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I hope you listen closely to that that whole exchange. First, he starts off with, doesn't matter who funded it. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. If uh, if a Russian lady is like, I would like to have a meeting with Donald Trump Jr. I have things to, you know, that's treason, right? He sits down to talk to a lady with a Russian name and a Russian accent. We, we were to, oh, my gosh, they were 
That was DEFCON 1. The, the, the country was all over for us. Right? This is what this is what now we have to deal with. They set this standard and now they're walking away from it. But the notion that who funded this dossier is unimportant. I mean, that's that is it would be laughable if it weren't so heinous, right? I mean, it is preposterous. Of course it matters who funded it. Because if somebody funded it, guess what? They had an interest in what was being done, and that interest affects the way that the entire project went on, and that that project, the dossier, found its way into the intelligence community, and the intelligence community is trying to verify it? They were... The, 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 does everyone not realize what, what this guy is saying? DNI Clapper is saying that the intelligence community was a commandeered by the Clinton campaign. Whether they realize it or not, this is what happened. They were commandeered by the Clinton campaign to do oppo research on President Trump. That's what this was. Oh, we have a dozen. We're going to find out the information in this. Well, why? There's, it's, it's completely flimsy nonsense. Why is the intelligence community trying to vet all this? And I should note... There's another part of this, too. You notice very quickly, she goes, he goes, well, some substance, uh, some substantive parts of it, they were, they, were, they were verified. Some parts of it were, you know, uh, so, you know, so they were verified. Like what? No details given. You'll know. Here he is on TV and he's got, you know, Hillary and Hillary partisans. The, the Bernie partisans watch the Young Turks. That's a different thing. That's on the interwebs. It's amazing. Like the oldest, the oldest guy in elected office in the country has the youngest medium uh, YouTube. That's where people go to watch Bernie stuff. But here we are, and you got this guy on CNN, former DNI. He says that there were some parts of it that were verified. We we don't get to know what those parts were. Oh, isn't that? Let me let me guess. If he was pushed on it, you know, he'd say oh, it's, it's classified. It's classified. I can't uh, you know can't reveal it. Oh yeah, sure, sure it is, buddy. Sure it is. You know, isn't that convenient as well? So, the, so they're telling us there's some substantive, uh, substantive aspects of it that were important. Let's use that word. There are important aspects of it that were verified, but no, we're not aware of that. We're aware of parts of it that were proven to be false right away. But notice, and Aaron Burnett jumps right to, so what, the president, the president's a liar. Isn't it amazing how you, you see in that one exchange how the media makes the sausage, how the whole thing happens, Right. Bring on somebody who's supposed to have gravitas, who, by the way, is wildly unimpressive. And I know that for a whole bunch of other reasons I can tell you about another time. But a very unimpressive government bureaucrat with a fancy title who comes on TV and takes an explicitly political position, says something that's preposterous, I should note. It doesn't matter who funded the dossier. Yeah, it does. Says that, and then all of a sudden it turns into, well, I mean, some of the stuff was true, so yeah, Trump's a liar. And it happens like in the blink of an eye. What you're, if you're sitting at home watching that segment, what you take away from it is, yeah, okay, so the dossier is actually kind of true and Trump's a liar and who cares who funded it. All of that is false. Like, all of that is wrong, wrong, wrong. Fake news. Fake news. You were seeing it in real time last night. But that's what they offer up. That's what they show you. That's the gold standard right there. Or one of the gold standards, I guess. This is what they've, this is what they've been... Uh, Forced to turn to now, telling you things that are so obviously untrue that I guess they're just hoping their audience is all caught up in the delusion and is not thinking for themselves.
it doesn't matter who funded it, really. That would that would last about five seconds under cross examination, right? Oh yeah, it doesn't matter. As who cares if Hillary, who cares if it was all just opposition research that became the seed of what is now the largest effort to take down this presidency that there is. Who cares if it was a Hillary sponsored lie that is supposed to destroy this White House and this presidency? I mean, that's what he's really saying to you. Oh, yeah, some of it was verified. It was, that was a remarkable, a remarkable exchange. And, you know, here I, I've got CNN on the screen. I love this. All I can see are the chirons because obviously I'm doing radio, so I won't, I can't have the volume on during the show, but I like to follow on the screens a little bit as I go. Although usually, as the team here will tell you, when I'm, when I'm in the midst of a monologue, I just stare off into space because I feel like I'm talking to all of you. Uh, but I, can, I see this top Dems deny knowledge of paying firm behind Trump dossier. Think about, let let me translate what they're telling you here. That important people to Hillary's campaign were paying millions of dollars and somehow not aware at all that those millions of dollars were going towards the creation of a document that was meant to give, to literally hand the presidency to Hillary on a silver platter. Well, not literally, because that's impossible. You know what I mean? But to effectively hand Hillary Clinton the presidency. They didn't know about it. I mean, how stupid do they think we all are? I mean, you'll see all these journalists. Oh, well, they said they didn't know. I guess they didn't know. I mean, they said they don't know. This is when when the best defense that the anti-Trump media can offer up is we're just a bunch of idiots. You know, they're in trouble. And right now, that's really the best defense. We're just not very smart. And we think that the Democrats who were involved were telling the truth. Nope, they are not. And this is all coming down. And not only are the people, the Democrats involved, upset about it because of their deep ideological investment in the destruction of President Trump, but also we have Google, right? We have the Internet, the interwebs. We can go back and look at the videos and read the articles of people who were making it sound like Trump was going to be marched out of the White House in handcuffs any day now for this Russia collusion. How are those people going to look when it's as clear as can be that this was just all a lie? And then they're going to want us to take them seriously on other things. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. Once credibility is burned, it is gone. But I guess it was gone for many of them a long time ago. All right, we've got much more show, team. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. I'm just getting I'm just getting warmed up here. Stay with me. I think the real reason the Republicans are launching these stupid investigations is like dangling this shiny object saying, here, look at it. They're trying to distract from the disaster at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Democrats are going to resist and fight those queries. Oh, yeah, it's uh, the stupid investigations. You know, it's, it's just all a distraction. It's all it's all garbage. What's with all this investigations, man? Like. Why they got to be out there doing all these investigations now, you know? Ah, you mean that litigating your politics via prosecutor's offices and special counsel, not, not so cool, huh? Not, not such a great idea when, especially when you're the party of, of the Clintons, right? I know for a while it was Barack Obama's Democrat party, but there was always Hillary Clinton's party kind of in waiting, you know, they were sort of in exile within the Democrat party. And if you're going to be 
running around wagging your finger at people saying, how, da- how dare you violate these ethical pledges? You better hope that you're not standing next to a Clinton when you're doing it. Why not? What happened? Um, oh, by the way. Happy birthday to me. It's Hillary Clinton's birthday today. You know that? True story. Yeah, that's right. Shout out for Hillary. Ha- oh, no, I can't. I think if you sing happy birthday, you can get sued, right? Like, that's the. Yeah, you can. They're very strict about that. So I just gonna say, happy birthday. That's all I can do. For Hillary. She's having a great, she's having a great time, I'm sure. She's, there's a lot of yoga, a lot of walks in the woods, a lot of wine. That's all I know about Hillary's uh, free time. So, oh, wait, I was talking about the distraction. I got distracted by Hillary's birthday. We'll get to her in a little bit, by the way. Well, you know, I, I look, you know, the other day, I'm sure she's having a nice birthday and everyone should have a nice birthday. See, we all need to be nice here. Everyone should have a nice birthday. I hope she's having some nice cake. Um, where was I? Oh, yes, on the investigations. Let's trash some Democrats for a second. That's always fun. On the investigations, they've been uh, so all about investigating the, the Republicans since the beginning of Trump's presidency. And now that the House is going to look into Uranium One and there's more, I think, of a fear among Democrats that some foul play in the whole Trump surveillance, wiretapping, unmasking, all that stuff. You know, that's starting to get them a little concerned. And you know it's a problem when you got Adam Schiff, Representative Schiff, who's one of the Democrat Party's attack dogs, although he's kind of, he, he is uh, he is charisma challenged, you could say. Not exactly. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, he's not going to be selling shamwows anytime soon. You know what I mean? Definitely not. But here, here's what he had to say. Uh, it really is uh, a sideshow. Uh, there are always questions you can ask about any of the procedures that are used by the intelligence community, but we see no evidence of any malicious uh, unmasking. Uh, you know, this, uh, the origin of this wolf was, like most problems these days, a presidential tweet. Uh, yeah, they're seeing nothing. I'm sure they're looking really hard to find it, too. I'm sure that they are doing everything. That, that Adam Schiff, he is leaving no... He is leaving no stone unturned. <laughs> I mean, the guy really... Who, who, who votes for these people, by the way? You know? I know that Kid Rock is not, in fact, running, which, sad, on the inside. I know. I mean, look, he was never going to run, right? I mean, come on. Oh, no, Ty is like... No, Ty is not having it. He's not... Amy, all, Amy is, is being diplomatic, but Ty is like Kid Rock. Not, would not have made a great... Not a great statesman, you think, Tyrone? Okay, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take your... Uh, I'm going to take your word for it. I think I'll take your side in. I think I agree with you. It would have been fun, though. It would have been fun to see him like, hey, like, let's all, like, you know, drink whiskey and play guitar and hang out, Kid Rock style. Uh, but anyway, he's not running. But, you know, if it was a, if it was a choice between Schiff and Kid Rock, um, I'm, I'm definitely going with, with Kid Rock. Uh, I think that's fair to say. So, yeah, the, the, the point here, I got a little distracted during this segment by myself. The point here, and things that I was thinking out loud, uh, is that the investigations, this just avalanche of investigations the Democrats started, now that it's blowing back on them, they're kind of unhappy with it. And I told them, don't start this. You know, don't get on this path. You're not going to like it. And they're starting to not like it. Let's talk about the next one. So the FBI informant that we were told earlier in the week was under an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement, and therefore not able to speak out about all the rampant corruption and and uh, backroom dealing and coercion and shady stuff 
in the U.S. nuclear energy uranium industry under the Obama administration. He has been released from his NDA by the Trump administration. It's good to be the president. Uh, oh, before, so we're going to get into that in one second. One thing I just want to say on, on the JFK stuff, um, you know what? I'll hold on JFK. I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be mixing up uh, the order of the segments here, but I just saw this as well. I don't have too much on JFK, but I will get to that later. I meant to just mention that. So back to the FBI informant. Uh, he is cleared to speak now because Trump runs the DOJ, which I should note, I think that Trump also would be, uh, people say that he can't because it'll look like he's trying to influence the investigation by Mueller. Uh, and, and I actually think that there's a pretty strong case to be made for Mueller not being able to continue on the investigation. I was opposed to the investigation all along, as you know. I have been consistent on that one from go. Uh, but we will see what happens there. But the uh, the FBI informant, um, the F- I would like to see Trump release more classified, in decla- he can declassify it. I'd like to see Trump declassify more information around all these issues of Russia and collusion, because the more information we have, I think the more desperate, pathetic, and dishonest the media narrative around all this stuff will look. But here is the, uh, I think, is it the lawyer, right? The attorney for the lawyer um, who, I'm sorry, (laughs) the attorney for the informant, (laughs) the attorney for the lawyer, the attorney for the informant who was gagged by the NDA, that is now over with. He will be able to testify and he will be testifying before Congress. Here's what the informant's lawyer said. He can put a lot of meat on those bones that um, Sarah and John have uh, built for us. He has a lot of evidence. I haven't uh, been able to get to see it all, but uh, I will do so now. He's going to put a lot of meat on the bones. That's going to be, I think, some pretty uh, high-octane, intense testimony before... The Congress, I I have a feeling there are a lot of folks out there that really do not want, especially in the former Obama administration official who like to just uh, constantly just just get so upset at how terrible the Trump administration is all the time on TV. I don't think they want it to be known that the FBI didn't think the American people had any right to know about these efforts by the Russians to corrupt our nuclear energy sector and to also get influence at the top levels of government, including the Secretary of State, who was Hillary Clinton. Right? This, when you start to put all these pieces together, it just stinks to high heaven. It really does. And you know that there's more, too. This is just what's been uncovered. It's been uncovered despite the fact that 90% of the press would rather it not have had to be uncovered. 90% of the press would rather the American people not know any of this stuff. And it's also, isn't it amazing, when you, when you think of the amount of derogatory information that has come out about Hillary and Russia and uh, all of that versus the amount of actually derogatory information That has come out about Trump. And then you look at the resources that have been allocated by the media for to each of those tasks. 
pretty amazing. You think about it. 90% of the press is trying to take Trump down and find everything they can on Russia. 90% of the press doesn't want any bad stuff coming out about Hillary or, you know, the Obama administration, its dealings with Russia or unmasking, surveillance, any of that stuff. And look at what we know and try to create in your head, you know, balance out these two sides and see which one looks worse. It's pretty amazing when you, when you put it into that context, I think. It's pretty astonishing. This is this is where we are. Um, but there will be a, a reckoning, I believe, for the Democrats when this testimony happens before the Congress. If if he has what we think he has, why would the FBI have kept him under an NDA? Now, there are some reasons for that. Maybe he had uh, contact with FBI informants. They don't want him to uh, speak out about that. I mean, I-, I could understand that there are some reasons why the FBI wouldn't just want this guy running around. But given the information that we're talking about here, the DOJ, the Obama era DOJ, should have found a way to get this into the public sphere. We had a right to know, and they kept it from us. But we had a right to know. We should have known. I think Mike in Kentucky on the iHeart app wants to talk dossier and NDA. What's up, Mike? Hey, Buck, how's it going? Hey, I'm a uh, former Marine, recent law school grad, and I'm studying for the bar right now. And it's interesting because they make us study all of these ethics codes and all these things like this to be able to take this bar exam. Now, you have a lawyer who is working with the uh, FBI who signs a non-disclosure agreement. Under the ethical codes of professional conduct, he can be disbarred for allowing someone else to use his profession and his skills to commit a crime. Then you have James Comey, who is a, 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 a licensed practicing lawyer who's the director of the FBI, who then turns in a false report to a court to fraudulently get wiretaps and warrants. These are all crimes. Why is Jeff Sessions not doing anything about it? I don't have a good answer to your last question. I think Sessions is caught up in a little bit of uh, Boy Scoutism with not wanting to look like he's being a political, you know, uh, a political puncher like the other the, the attorneys general that came before him. So that's just my that's my gut reaction. To that, But I don't have a good answer to that question. What are you are you referring specifically to the usage of the dossier? Uh, the usage of the dossier by Comey, or what? What the second part of your of your statement? What? Tell me that again. Yeah, the second part is is they when they applied for uh, FISA warrants to tap Donald Trump and Donald Trump's associates, they used that dossier. Now that's filing a false report with the court. That's I don't, but I don't think they used period. just the dossier, right? So that's no, although I don't know. It doesn't matter if they turned in any document that was false and they knew it was false, which they did because they, they, they knew not only where it came from, but who was paying for it. Wait, but Mike, did, they know, did they know it was false, though? Because that's their claim right now is that, OK, maybe the DNC paid for it. But just essentially their claim as of today is just because Hillary paid for it doesn't make it untrue. Right. That's what they're saying. Well, from what from from what I have seen and read not only did the FBI offer $50,000 to this guy for his dossier, but then backed out of it when his name was leaked to the press, but they also paid for his expenses. So not only did they know that he was being paid by the Clinton camp, which introduces an aspect of conflict of interest in the first place, which should have discredited all of his work in the first place, therefore it should have been thrown out, 
but filing any document with the court that is false, knowingly or unknowingly, is going to be an ethical violation for Comey. And he was questioned in Congress by Senator Graham, uh, uh, asking him exactly if he knew who this agency was. I, I find your brief compelling, Counselor. And what was the first part of what you said again? There was a lot. Which one? The very beginning, you <laughs> said, yeah, there's a, there's a lot, Counselor. Walk me back through the court transcript. What was the first thing you said? Well, well, the, the attorney who was working as the informant. For the FBI, oh, yeah, the NDA, the NDA part of this. That's what I want to focus on. What, what's your yes. contention about the NDA? Well, he's an attorney, which means he's licensed, and he's sworn to operate under uh, the professional code of conduct, allowing anyone to use his services to break the law is a crime for him. Of course, it's not a crime. It would disbar him. They should investigate him and disbar Who him. Who are we talking about? Breaking the ethical code. The, uh, the, the informant for the FBI. He's a lawyer? The non-disclosure. Yes, he's a lawyer. Oh, I didn't know that. I hadn't heard yeah, that. Where do you see that? Attorney. He was an attorney for uh, what was this group that uh, uh, I can't remember what the name of the group was that Hillary hired to make the dossier or, or invest. Fusion GPS. For the yes, Fusion GPS. He was in a, he was the attorney for them. Wait, the re, wait. Hmm? I I don't. I'm not sure yeah. about that. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to check this out they, because. The informant, I thought the informant out. was about the uranium, was, was uranium one. The informant's not about Fusion GPS. The Kremlin hired two former Soviet uh, intelligence spies to actually source out the employment for Fusion to prepare this dossier against Trump. And all of this was done through the Clinton campaign, through the DNC, with finances from them. Yeah. All right. Look, I, I got to say, Mike, I've got to look. I got to find. I have not seen what you are telling me that you have seen. So, if you wouldn't mind, man, please do send us this because right now I'm just you're saying things. I'm like, I have not read that or seen that anywhere, so I can't give you anything on the on the first part of this with no the problem. NDA. My my no. sense of the NDA. I got to look at who this individual was. This this informant. Uh, because he was about the uranium uranium one issue. I did not see any GPS fusion GPS crossover, but I, I, I'm going to leave it there. Mike, thank you for your service. Thank you for your call. Uh, not saying Mike's wrong. I'm just saying I, I'm. He was making connections there that I haven't seen anywhere else, so I can't. I, I don't know. We'll look into it. I think he was saying. I mean, Tyrone, correct. He's saying that the law the guy who was under a gag order is a lawyer who was also tied into fusion gps i don't think that's i have not seen that anywhere um we're trying to look it up now All but right. nothing we've read specifically says that yeah no i think cuz i think we don't know who i was under the impression we didn't really know who the guy with a gag order was right <laughs> that's the whole part, part of the part of the or the nda part of an nda is usually you can't be like hey i've got all this secret stuff to say my name is you know, John such and such, right? I mean, that right. doesn't and work. Amy's looking it up right now. She also hasn't found anything specific. Maybe during a commercial break we'll All find right. it. Hey, look, you know, I mean, everyone listening is a part of the show, and, and I have a, I like to say that we have a Freedom Hut research team of, of three in here, me, Amy, and Tyrone, but it's actually a team of people across the country because if you've got good stuff, you've got information, please do share it with us, your analysis as well as facts. We like facts here, so uh, if there's a fact we're missing or we need to – Bolster the conversation. Do 
send it our way. And with that, I will move uh, from the topic of the FBI informant. We'll talk a little about JFK and then uh, op- the opioid epidemic. We've got uh, Hans von Spakovsky joining. He was an FEC commissioner to talk about that FEC complaint that Hillary's campaign violated FEC law by working with Fusion by paying Fusion GPS and not saying what they were paying them for. Essentially, we'll get into it. we'll talk to him about that, and then also uh, we'll be joined by a, a journalist who's going to talk to us about how he thinks that. They're doing the bidding of the Russians without even necessarily knowing it, more or less. We'll get to that and more, so stay with me. Okay, so the uh, JFK assassination and and the files that the government has around it, we're going to try to get somebody who is uh, compelling and fact-based to join us who's really into this. I I will be honest with you. This is not a, a historical event that I... I have spent much time uh, thinking about other than just, yeah, what was it, November 22nd, 1963, right? JFK, U.S. president assassinated JFK. Uh, I I haven't even seen the movie JFK, which isn't that the Oliver Stone movie? So so I'm really out of the loop on like what the theories are and everything else. But I know this has gotten, it's gotten a lot of attention right now. So I just want to give you uh, an update on this and, and I'll, I'll put it out there that we will return to this when we have somebody who's, and by the way, if any of you have any JFK theories, now I'm really asking for it, right? Hey, we're open to them, you know? If you, if you, and you know what? I think around, when it comes to this particular historical topic, conspiracies are, you're kind of in a conspiracy, not a, you're in a, uh, not a conspiracy free zone, but in a free conspiracy zone, I think. I think you're allowed to just, Give your thoughts on this because that's what people do. Uh, and I don't even know. I, I don't even have any conspiracy around this that I'm aware of or believe. Of course, uh, you know, this is what a former CIA guy would say, right? Oh, I don't know anything about anything. I never. Look, I'm not saying I know anything. I'm just not saying I don't know anything. I don't know. It's like in The Rock when, uh, when what is it? Uh, Sean Connery, who plays like an MI6 guy, he's been in prison forever. And at the very end, you know, he's hidden a microfilm and it's like, honey, you want to know who really killed JFK? There's that whole thing. You know, so this is in pop culture. It's everywhere. All the conspiracies about JFK assassination. And a, a lot of you listening know a lot more about that particular event than I do. I'll just be honest with you, says the says the former CIA guy. But no, it's true. But no, it's true. That's really I really don't know anything about this stuff. Um, other than, the, you know, what you learn in school. So here's what Trump has put out on this, because uh, people want all the information out there. Look, it happened in 1963. How sensitive can the information be? I mean, anybody who was named in any documents, uh, they're going to be up there in terms of age. Right. I mean, I don't think there were. You know, unless somebody was like a, a a teenager who had infiltrated the highest echelons of the U.S. government, I mean, people are going to be up there. So I'm just a little, I'm wondering why there's any issue here. Okay, here's what here's the memo from the the president today on this. The American public, this is I'll just quote it. I'll read you the first paragraph or so. The American public expects and deserves its government to provide as much access as possible to the President John F. Kennedy assassination records so that the people may finally be fully informed about all aspects of this pivotal event. Therefore, I am ordering today that the veil finally be lifted. So you read this and you're like, oh, okay, so we're going to get some, you know, they're going to finally open up all the files. Uh Uh-oh, there's more. At the same time, executive departments and agencies have proposed to me that certain information 
should continue to be redacted because of national security, law enforcement, and foreign affairs concerns. I have no choice today but to accept those redactions rather than allow potentially irreversible harm to our nation's security. To further address these concerns, I'm also ordering agencies to review each and every one of those redactions over the next 180 days. At the end of that period, I'll order the public disclosure of any information the agencies cannot demonstrate meets the statutory standard for continued postponement of disclosure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So he starts off with, you guys should know everything about the J. Like, it's time, right? There's nothing that it's time, but you should know everything. But, I mean, there's some serious national security, law enforcement, and foreign relations concerns with some of it. So you can't know that. Huh? Right? That, that would seem to be, if one was trying to set off a whole bunch of conspiracy theorists, I mean, this is, I, I know, I know there's at least one show this week that's going to be, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, it's, it's like, it's like a, the, the memo came down from the Queen of England herself. I mean, it's crazy, everybody. It's, 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 it's an outrage. It's an outrage. I mean, I'm sitting here. I, I, I'm in, I'm, you know, I'm tin hats. I mean, fluoride in the water. It's crazy what's going on. Yeah. I mean, look, on this one, you know, you, you got to kind of say that those who are saying there's something up here, this is, this is banning the flames of conspiracy because this is like you know I, I think that there was still some US government material about like World War One or maybe it was just World War Two that until very recently was still considered classified I'm like guys guys come on if, if everybody involved has, has you know is, is no longer with us like I, I think but you know you don't know the government government's shifty with this stuff and with the JFK files I guess we're just gonna have to wait it's full disclosure Except it's not. That is why, effective today, my administration is officially declaring the opioid crisis a national public health emergency under federal law, and why I am directing all executive agencies to use every appropriate emergency authority to fight. I want the American people to know the federal government is aggressively fighting gave a very powerful speech today um, on the opioid crisis, something that we have talked about on this show many times in the past. In fact, from the uh, very beginnings of the show, it's a topic that we have been looking at because it, it is a true pandemic. It is a, a, there is a pandemic of pain and there is a crisis of painkiller abuse, overuse, and overdose in this country. About 60,000 people a year now are dying, dying in this country from overdose on uh, opioids, uh, heroin, uh, other prescription painkillers, and fentanyl. Fentanyl being incredibly potent. We've talked to you about it before here on the show. So potent that you have to be concerned if you're a first responder about absorbing it through your skin. There's the possibility of overdose that way. And because of the different uh, effects on the brain receptors that these drugs can have, what would be, I mean, none of the, we're talking about fentanyl. I mean, it, what would be uh, an overdose for some, if for others, would be, to, would, their system would be able to tolerate it. And it's not clear, like alcohol, that it's based on weight and, and other aspects, right? It just is the way that it interacts with your brain chemistry. It's a terrifying uh, situation, and it's tragic. Uh, people are 
losing their lives. And then when you add on to the 60,000 dead, you also have the uh, many hundreds of thousands who are addicted and throwing away their lives, uh, throwing away everything that is good around them because of their addiction, because of this, uh, because of this disease. And I think that what made for me today, I mean, the, the president will get into, um, actually, let me just let him give you some of the statistics. Then I'll tell you why I think the president was able to personalize this in a way that made it one of his more profound, you could argue his most profound speeches in, in quite some time, certainly since the inauguration. Uh, here is what the president said, though, about the, st- I mean, the statistics around the opioid crisis in this country. I don't know. I, I see where everyone's calling in on the show, and um, sometimes it's coming in from states, and I'm just, I, they're getting so crushed by this. Uh, you know, it's, it's a huge problem in the Northeast, up not too far from where I am right now, huge problem in New Hampshire, huge problem in rural parts of the country. I mean, it is just devastating. And the numbers are, uh, they're almost hard to believe. Here's what Trump said during the speech about that. Opioid overdose deaths have quadrupled since 1999 and now account for the majority of fatal drug overdoses. Who would have thought? This epidemic is a national health emergency. Unlike many of us, we've seen and what we've seen In our lifetimes, nobody has seen anything like what's going on now. It it is unprecedented um, that there's a 4x, a 400% rise in uh, opioid deaths tells you a lot, that the number is over 60,000 now a year dead. Uh, Who knows how many, I said hundreds of thousands, could be millions really that are affected when you add it all in, people who are incarcerated, losing their, uh, losing their freedom because of this, uh, who are constantly struggling, losing jobs, losing families. I mean, it is, it's devastating. And what made Trump's speech today on this so powerful is that uh, he, he lost his brother to alcoholism, which, while not an opioid, uh, is an incredibly powerful addiction to have. And, and ruins lives. I've spoken to you on this show before about how alcohol addiction, uh, alcoholism is something that is portrayed one way generally in media and, and in movies. And, and it's actually often much more subtle. It can be more pernicious. It can sneak up on you. You can be around it without even really recognizing it for what it is. Um, alcohol abuse is a term you don't hear nearly enough. But that's the prelim- that's usually the, the preliminary step. I mean, that's what comes right before full full blown alcoholism. And a lot of people that I have known in my life, a lot of people socially, a lot of my peers have certainly had alcohol abuse problems, and some of them have been full on alcoholics. And it is a sad thing because when you're around somebody who's an alcoholic, you see the uh, devastating impact it has on their life, and you see how they are no longer really in full control of what they're saying, their actions. They, they become prisoners of the, of the disease that grips them. And Trump lost his brother to alcoholism. And that you can, you know, this is, he's a president who I think doesn't often show his 
doesn't often show his emotions and uh, is, is usually putting a, a stiff upper lip on for the American people, as I think the commander in chief overwhelmingly should. Um, but when he spoke about his brother, you could tell this has stayed with Donald Trump for uh, his entire adult life. I learned myself. I had a brother, Fred. Great guy. Best looking guy. Best personality. Much better than mine. But he had a problem. He had a problem with alcohol. And he would tell me, don't drink. Don't drink. He was substantially older, and I listened to him, and I respected. But he would constantly tell me, don't drink. He'd also add, don't smoke. But he would say it over and over and over again. And to this day, I've never had a drink. And I have no longing for it. I have no interest in it. To this day, I've never had a cigarette. Don't worry. Those are only two of my good things. I don't want to tell you about the bad thing. There's plenty of bad things, too. But he really helped me. I had somebody that guided me. And he had a very, very, very tough life because of alcohol. Believe me. And that's what happens. Substance abuse and substance addiction, it it ruins lives. It uh, destroys families. And with the uh, opioid crisis... Uh, it is spiraling out of control. Um, the basis of all this or the, the origins of this crisis are, are multi-pronged. And you look at this from the perspective of, one, the drugs are just more potent. And especially when you're not talking about heroin anymore, when you're talking about the prescription drugs. Now these are drugs people are getting legally that they become addicted to. And then if they can't get them through that legal process, they want to get them illegally and they start increasing the dosage and going down a very dangerous path. Uh, and then you have some of the other designer opioids, if you will, that are out there that are being made. And uh, we've had expert an expert on this on the show in the past telling us that they're being made in vast commercial quantity in places like China. I'm sure you know they're being in some of the dodgier parts of Russia, it's being done as well. And they are odorless pills that can be sent however you'd send anything else, right? I mean, it's it's very different from what you're dealing with with heroin and cocaine, where you have the coca plant or the poppy, which have to be uh, have to be grown, and there, there's a whole process with them. And it's a pretty labor-intensive thing to create to take poppy and make it into bricks of heroin and to get it into the country. and But if you're just talking about pills, pills that in, in some cases m- mimic or are essentially the uh, chemical doppelganger of what's legally available, it's much, much harder. I mean, prohibition alone, uh, and then with some of these drugs, I think they are so dangerous that I'm in favor. I, I'm in favor of legalizing marijuana, for example. I think people that have followed me long enough know that, but I think that Treating all drugs as just drugs is is nonsense. It's not based in reality. Some drugs are more dangerous than other drugs. Uh, and some of these substances, when you're talking about opioids, are one-use overdose risks, which is, and yeah, ties, ties and agree with me on this one. It's a totally different ballgame than, you know, you're going to have somebody who smokes weed one time, which my understanding is no one has ever, marijuana's uh, fat-soluble, no one has ever overdosed to death from marijuana. I'm not even sure it's possible to do. 
So to treat marijuana as, and this is, we, we're already moving this direction. I believe weed will be legal in the country. Marijuana, I keep calling it weed. Marijuana will be legal in this country in the next 10 to 15 years. I think that will happen. Uh, Washington State and Colorado have not turned into hellscapes because they have, in violation of federal law, legalized marijuana. But opioids are different. Opioids are different. I, I do not know anyone who is uh, high-functioning, happy, paying their bills and doing, uh, you know, d- doing their best in life who is uh, addicted to fentanyl. Okay, that th- that I've never met. I have met people that you know like to have a few drinks here and there, and they're doing great. And I've, I mean, it's pretty much everybody I know. And I have certainly met some people that smoke some marijuana and still manage to be very high functioning and very effective at what they do, and you know, take care of their families and are good moms or good dads. Uh, I have never met somebody that has a deep opioid addiction that is not dramatically um, hurting their uh, their lives. So I would just put that out there. I've had many friends. Um, when I say friends, really more associates, to be honest with you. I was fortunate in that uh, because of my time at the CIA and there's a zero drug. I mean, you know, you have security clearance, federal government. There's no drugs. You're not doing any drugs and you don't want to be around anybody doing drugs. So I always, quite honestly, had a built in an ironclad excuse and escape hatch from being around anybody that was doing that stuff. But growing up in New York, I saw I saw it ruin. I saw it ruin kids lives. I saw teenagers going to rehab. I knew teenagers that had to, my peers that had to go to the hospital for one form of overdose or another. And it's really scary. Uh, So Trump is taking this incredibly seriously. And uh, he's saying that prescription drugs are, are a major component of this. I know they're going, they're going after some of these big pharma companies with lawsuits when there's really reckless behavior. I'm okay with that, but let's, you know, you, you start to get into, well, uh, is it the abuse of this or is it the mere existence of some of these substances out on the out on the market? And they're already heavily fe- uh, federally regulated. Right? I mean, if you go and you if you just go to pick up Xanax, they ask for your ID and it goes into a system. And, you know, I, I know from a, a friend of mine who's a psychiatrist, actually, that if they get even close to certain. Uh, levels of legal prescription, they might end up on a DEA list, and the DEA might come and want to have a little chat with that doctor. Just just because they've prescribed a certain amount of drugs, and you know, DEA. So I mean, th- this is already being looked at. There's a lot of regulations, a lot of laws in place, and uh, Trump is saying the prescription drugs will be a big part of this. I am urging all Americans to help fight this opioid epidemic and the broader issue of drug addiction by participating in the National Prescription Drug Take Back Day this Saturday. When you can safely turn in these dangerous and horrible drugs for disposal, that will be a wonderful, wonderful period of time for you. All of these actions are important parts of my administration's larger effort to confront the drug addiction crisis in America and confront it head on, straight on, strong. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. For too long, we have allowed drugs to ravage American homes, cities, and towns. President uh, had some very important words today. We'll, we'll finish up our discussion on uh, the opioid epidemic and the national health emergency that has been declared by the president right after the break. And then after that, we'll uh, talk to 
Uh, a lawyer and a journalist about the latest on the FEC complaint against Hillary and the DNC and also Fusion GPS and the journalists that are in its pocket and oh so much more. Third hour, also sexual harassment talk coming up. Um, I have some. I'm going to talk to you about a, a kind of what's become your standard case of egregious sexual harassment and sexual assault from a another person in the media. Um, we'll get into that and then. The first of what I'm afraid will be many instances of overreach from those who are trying to make examples out of people uh, because of sexual harassment. And that has to do with George H.W. Bush, the former president. I I find the allegations against him to be not just outrageous, but cruel, cruel. And the people who made them should be ashamed. But I'll explain why uh, when we get to that. And I'll be back right after this break. All right, I want to finish up our discussion of uh, opioids here. Uh, Trump mentioned the law enforcement and uh, interdiction efforts as part of all this, which is certainly the case. Here's what they say about a border wall. An astonishing 90% of the heroin in America comes from south of the border where we will be building a wall which will greatly help in this problem. will have a great impact. My administration is dedicated to enforcing our immigration laws, defending our maritime security, and securing our borders. It is amazing. Heroin production was largely a problem of Afghanistan, had to make its way. That's where the poppies were. Huge proportion of just even a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago. I forget what when it really changed. But it's now moved to Mexico. Instead of the cartels just being the middlemen, the cartels are, are growing the stuff and taking it across the border. So that's critical to uh, slowing down this epidemic. Although, as I said, with fentanyl and with the, the pill form of opioids, they're pills. I mean, they can however they can get them here, however they can hide them. It is very difficult uh, to deal with preventing those drugs from getting into the U.S. and uh with the prescription drugs, I wonder how we're going to handle this because there is a pain, a pain pandemic in this country too. I don't know if we're just more aware of it now, or if people are uh, working longer and expecting more of themselves physically than they used to. And if you look at the, uh, the physical output of people that are right now in their sixties and seventies versus what people tended to be capable of doing in their sixties and seventies, a few generations ago, it's it's a world of difference. Uh, you know, if you look at uh, what is possible now, I mean, how long people are able to be I mean, not just active, but demanding of themselves physically. We've extended it in recent decades by decades. And I think that there's a, a, a part there's a component of this that has to do with just the, the, the wear and tear that we put on our bodies and the pain that people are in. A lot of this, I know I've talked to you about chronic pain. There is a crossover between the the opioid epidemic and the chronic pain problems that so many Americans have. Uh, And some people need these painkillers to function, and I understand that. And so we need to find better ways, non-addictive painkillers, better ways to deal with it. But also, a lot of this is uh, lifestyle-related. A lot of chronic pain is actually related to lifestyle choices and, and, and previous injuries, which I know all about as somebody who's got some chronic pain from injuries. And, and then there's a component of this, too, which is for those who are just taking them for purely recreational reasons, which is very poor decisions, very, very dangerous. 
I think that in a lot of forgotten parts of this, parts of this country that are forgotten by the mainstream media, a lot of parts of the country that Donald Trump's message uh, resonated in, there is a sense of lack of purpose and a sense of economic hopelessness. And so there's a psychological pain that people are trying to escape. And these opioids, these drugs can create a valve for that pressure. Not a healthy one, not a good one, but I think it's one that a lot of people are turning to. And I think that's tied in the opioid epidemic as well. But it's something we're to continue to follow. I'm glad the president declared it a national emergency. And it's a story that we'll be looking into more as the efforts to combat it get ramped up. Uh, we'll talk about the FEC complaint against Fusion GPS coming up. All right. Those of you who have been uh, listening to the show for a while are quite aware that we make sure to hold the media up to their own standards, whether they want it or not. And I think we have a very interesting take on what may have been going on behind the scenes with all this Russia collusion, confusion and mess going on. Lee Smith is with us now. He is the media columnist at Tablet Magazine. He's got a piece. Does U.S. media help Russia destabilize the United States? Lee, great to have you on. Thanks a lot for having me on. Great to be with you. All right. So please walk us through your argument here in the piece. I mean, it seems that you're saying yeah. that there are journalists who are so beholden to Fusion GPS that they were doing Fusion's bidding and also not asking questions about the whole, hey, you're getting this stuff from Russia. What's going on here? Yeah. Well, the person that I that I interview in the piece, um, William Browder, who is the driving force behind us, uh, sanctions regime against officials associated with Vladimir Putin, this is the case that, uh, that Mr. Browder makes, that um, Fusion GPS, the same Washington, D.C.-based firm that uh, is behind the creation um, and distribution of the uh, Steele dossier, alleging you know, these connections between uh, the president, his circle, and Russian officials. There's also, um, I mean, this is a fact. Browder does not allege the fact that they are behind a campaign uh, representing Russian interests to undo sanctions against uh, against Putin regime officials. So Browder's case is that um, yeah, there are a number of different journalists who are uh, who are working in tandem. We're working in lockstep with Fusion GPS, and uh, and indeed, Mr. Browder names one of them, which is uh, NBC News's national security correspondent Ken Delanian. This is who Mr. Browder names. And and how? T- tell me this. I mean, how does Delanian factor into all this? And w- what are the allegations that Browder makes? Yeah. Well, I mean, if, if uh, in, in the article, uh, in the article that I wrote for the Federalist, um, what 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 Mr. Browder points to is he points to uh, correspondence where uh, where Delanian is asking him a number of questions, and Browder notes how this line of questioning, which. Delanian keeps coming back to again and again and again, even though Browder, Browder and then later his lawyers provide Delanian um, with, uh, with what I certainly take to be compelling evidence. Delanian keeps coming back again and again, asking the same question. And Browder's case is that, uh, is that this case is in line with the, uh, the pro-Russian interest fusion GPS line of argumentation. That's how Mr. Browder explains it. Uh, Lee, for those listening, Magnitsky Act, Browder, uh, can you just give us a yeah. quick refresh on how, how does that get factored into all this Russia collusion, Hillary, fusion yeah. GPS, DNC stuff? I, 
I, I know there's a lot to uh, there's a lot to uh, a, lot, a lot to keep straight here. I would say one very important thing to keep in mind and uh, to, to keep in mind is that the idea that somehow this um, that this uh, Steele dossier again the one that alleges ties between uh, you know President Trump and um, and Russian officials. Uh, I, I mean now we know there was a piece in the Washington Post explaining how the uh, DNC and the Clinton campaign paid for part of it. Look, an important thing to keep in mind is where, where does the rest of this come from? Right? There, there are other sources here. The fact that former MI6 uh, agent Christopher Steele is speaking with Russian officials. Who are those Russian officials? Under what condition are they speaking? Right? I mean, the fact that Russian officials are allegedly revealing what would be considered classified information to a foreign intelligence officer to be uh, published in a dossier like this. I mean, I think a lot of the whole thing, I think a lot of it is extremely improbable. So let me put that on one. Right, that, well, that sounds like an information operation. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I used to work Precisely. in intelligence and, and yes. this, this right. sets off a lot of alarm bells for me. Exactly. So I'm not, I'm, I mean, you know much more about this than I do. Absolutely. The other thing to keep in mind, in addition to that, in addition to the fact that the description of the steel dossier itself sounds highly questionable, is the other campaign, at least one other campaign, that the Fusion GPS group was working on regarding uh, Russia. It's a pro-Russian campaign. They were representing, they were rep- representing pro-Russian interests to get sanctions on regime officials undone. They were working... They were working against the Magnitsky Act, uh, which is an important piece of American legislation, putting sanctions on Russian officials. And Fusion GPS was involved in that campaign. So that, that's so, an, that's a very important point you're making here, Lee, which is that F- GP, yes. Fusion GPS, we think of it as former you know, U.S. journalists that are now in the private intel world and doing some right. really dirt, dirty political tricks is what they specialize in, oppo research. But they are... Right. Openly, be, be, without even getting into steel on the and the dossier on Trump, they are a they are taking a lot of money and working very hard for pro Kremlin interests separate from the whole Trump issue. There are a lot of people in Washington representing a lot of bad people, uh, right? I, I mean, I, I've known lots of people, colleagues, even friends who've taken work representing bad people. What I, my problem is how the press is representing. This dossier and how the press represents Fusion GPS, it's their job. They're going to represent Russian interest or pro-Russian interest, and they're going to take money to do it. My problem is the way the press is using this and the way the press is interpreting this and the way the press is framing the Steele dossier, the way that the press, <laughs> the, the press is describing the entire Trump-Russian narrative without putting all of these different things in context. The fact that the press is using an information operation as part of a uh, as part of a political campaign against Trump, I think this is extremely dangerous. The press has always tended toward the left. I've worked in the press for thirty years. My father's a journalist. I know the press very well. I have. There's no problem with the fact it tends toward the left. This is a very different thing, though. When the institutions of the press have been undermined and when these guys are waging a political campaign, right, not just against uh, not just against the president, 
but the people who voted for president to try to jam up this agenda. And the press is doing that. It's an extremely dangerous thing to do to a vital American political institution that is supposed to help our public sphere function so that we can argue about the important debates of the day. It's it's an extremely dangerous thing that we're watching unfold here. The fundamental issue is not Fusion GPS. The fundamental issue is how the press is using Fusion GPS. Lee Smith is media columnist at Tablet Magazine. Check out his piece, Does U.S. Media Help Russia Destabilize the United States? All right, team, we will be right back. All right, so a lot going on in the world of courts and legal infighting and all the stuff that's happening with the DOJ, the FEC complaint. We've got to get into that now. We have Hans von Spakovsky with us. He's a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He's a former FEC commissioner and a former DOJ lawyer, author of the book Obama's Enforcer. Hans, great to have you, sir. Well, thanks for having me. All right. So Clinton and the DNC may have broken campaign finance law with the dossier funding, according to a complaint. What can you, as somebody who actually knows what the heck he's talking about with this stuff, tell us about this? Sure. Well, what's come out is that uh, Hillary Clinton's lawyer for her campaign, a guy named Mark Elias, his law firm basically paid uh, literally millions of dollars to Fusion GPS. And it's Fusion GPS that hired the uh, former British MI6 agent who put together this dossier. And the complaint that has been filed uh, uh, says or claims that... um, uh, the campaign violated federal campaign finance law because they didn't properly report the payments. You know, the law is very strict for campaigns. They have to file reports that where they list all of their expenditures. And you've got to be very specific. You've got to say how much money you spent and what you spent it for. And apparently they did report this money, but they reported it as payment for legal services. Well, that's obviously not correct. This dossier was opposition research. Opposition research is perfectly legal, but you've got to properly report it. Uh, but the other thing is, and this is a second potential problem, is look, federal law prohibits foreigners from having anything to do with American elections, either directly or indirectly. So if this foreign agent um, was spending money on behalf of the campaign to do research for it, that's another potential violation of federal law. Now, when we're talking about violations of the law here, what are the penalties? I mean, I think that's what a lot of people would want to know right away. I mean, assuming that, let, let's say that, that they did break this FEC law, I, I get a sense that the Clinton people would want to say, well, so what? Well, the most most of the punishments for violations of federal campaign finance laws result in civil penalties. You know, the campaign or the candidate ends up paying a big civil penalty. It becomes a criminal violation of the law if the government can prove that it was an intentional and knowing violation. So, I mean, to give you an example of that, um, look, if you just make a mistake and misreport something, yeah, you're probably going to pay a civil penalty. But if the government can prove that you did it intentionally, you wanted to hide what you were really spending the money on, that's a knowing and intentional violation of the law, and that's a potential criminal violation. We're speaking to Hans von Spakovsky, senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation and a former FEC commissioner, which is particularly 
important order discussion right now because there's a complaint before the Federal Election Commission about the dossier and the funding for it from Hillary and the DNC. Hans, what do you make of the the uh, slew of uh, denials from very senior Democrats about not knowing anything about the... I mean, when I mean Democrats, people tied into Hillary's campaign, people at the top of the DNC, they're all saying, I don't know anything about this dossier. But as you point out, millions of dollars, that, that just seems... That seems hard to swallow. Well, look, the key person who needs to be questioned about this is Hillary Clinton's lawyer, Mark Elias. He's the guy that, that um, uh, apparently made these payments, and lots of money went to him from both the Clinton campaign and the DNC. And by the way, he's like the leading campaign finance lawyer for Democrats uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, he, he basically, almost all of the members of the DNC, uh, Democratic candidates, they're all clients of him and his firm. So he's somebody who should know exactly what's going on here. It'd be oh, tough for him oh, yeah, to plead yeah. some kind of ignorance on these issues. No, no, he can't plead ignorance of the law because he's constantly before the Federal Election Commission with cases. Do you think there's a, there's, a, is, is it plausible to you that there was an active decision made to hide the fact that the DNC was involved with Fusion GPS, which was involved with all this Russia stuff. Well, I don't know if it was intentional or active. I mean, the one thing that that the complaint that was filed makes clear is that they did not, uh, the campaign uh, and the DNC, they did not properly identify what they were spending this money on. And that's something that they're going to have to explain whether that was just a mistake or, or, you know, what were the reasons for the way they did it? DNC Chair Tom Perez said about this whole mess uh, the following. Here's a newsflash. Candidates conduct research on their opponents. Um, and in the case of Donald Trump, the imperative for that is to not do that is political malpractice. Why? Because Donald Trump refused to release so many documents. I am glad that this research was being conducted. I learned about the dossier a few days ago. Okay, is that, um, how, how is uh, that possible? I mean, well, because you hire a lawyer, uh-huh. and we, we hire lawyers all the time who hire third-party vendors to do their work. And so, oh, okay, okay, okay. So, so she asked her that question, which. <laughs> How is it possible, Hans, that this is not just research, this is information that made its way to the FBI, that made its way into a presidential briefing, that was being actively discussed in all of the major newsrooms in this country, and if true, could have been the end of the Trump presidency. But DNC people didn't know about it? I mean, come on. You're a DOJ guy. This wouldn't stand up in court. No, no, it wouldn't. Look, his answer entirely avoids actually answering the issues we just raised. Nobody's claiming that, that you can't do opposition research. Yeah, of course, that's legal. And everybody does it. But the point is, is that they didn't properly report it, apparently, to the Federal Election Commission. And by the way, Tom Perez, a couple of years ago, a federal judge in the District of Columbia accused him of lying under oath. Now, this is in a federal court opinion um, in, the, oh, in the case regarding, remember the new Black Panther Party and the... The polling station, right, in Philadelphia area? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he was accused by a federal judge of having lied under oath about his involvement in the dismissal of that case. I want to also ask you about this uh, DOJ settlement 
with uh, the Tea Party groups that were targeted by the Obama era Internal Revenue Service. Uh, this feels like not enough to me. Just just from a from a quick glance over over this news story today, Hans, we're being told that they have settled lawsuits with the Tea Party, but. Are we supposed to believe this is accountability for what is now admitted on the record and clear IRS targeting of an essential conservative political movement in an election year? That is what happened. Well, what's unclear uh, is it, it looks like the the government has agreed to make some kind of payment. But so far, I don't think the details have come out of how much they're they're going to compensate these groups. Uh, in terms of actual money, you know, going to them. So I, I, I think we had a reserve judgment until we see what exactly it is is the government is doing. Look, this is something anyway because remember, the government closed the criminal case and said we're not going to do a criminal prosecution of Lois Lerner. So you know, this is the next best thing that these groups can get. The government admitting it did wrong, issuing an apology, and it looks like making some kind of payment to compensate the groups for what happened. Now, I know IRS Commissioner uh, Koskinen is on the way out. That was just announced today, I think. Yeah, thank, thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems like it took way too long from what I can see, Hans. Uh, but do you think that there has been, look, you got a different president now. I don't think President Trump's IRS is going to be targeting the Tea Party, but have there been any reforms within IRS and within DOJ, which is the only oversight, really, of the IRS, to prevent this politicized weaponization of the most frightening agency in the U.S. government in many ways from going after people for being conservative again? Well, look, all I can tell you is that, is that folks in the Trump administration have, have said that they have stopped this and that it won't happen again. I, I have to take them at, uh, at, at their word. Um, the fact that finally after, remember, the lawsuits against the IRS were filed years ago, and it took the Trump administration to finally say, look, they've got a good, good case and we ought to settle it. The Obama administration spent years fighting the lawsuits and doing everything they could to resist the lawsuit to the point where more than one federal judge criticized them for the fight they were putting up uh, in these cases. Hans von Spakovsky is a fellow at the Heritage Foundation and author of Obama's Enforcer, Eric Holder's Justice Department. Go check that out on Amazon. Hans, great to have you, man. Thanks for joining. Sure, thanks. Thanks for having me on. All right, team, rolling into a break here. We come back, we'll be talking a bit about the uh, later on the show about the sexual harassment scandals that keep uh, erupting and some of the politics around how that's going to continue on and what's happening there. Uh, and also a bit of history and oh, so much more. Stay with me. Well, the sexual harassment hunters are out in full force now because they found some egregious, horrific offenders. But there will also be a movement now. There will be an effort that I think is inevitably going to become overzealous to find and shame and ruin every sexual harasser to have ever existed, particularly on the right, and even for what, by any rational, normal standard, would be considered mild, if not entirely inoffensive conduct. First, let's start with a real case of sexual harassment. One that just broke in the news today. Uh, you had Mark Halpern 
over at uh, ABC News. He's also one of the Morning Joe guys. He's been invited to that table where Joe Scarborough sits around and just makes sure his hair has got a lot of volume and is way up in the air. And then he just goes, ugh, Trump. Uh, someone passed me an electric guitar. I want to go surfing. Uh, Mark Halpern's been at that guy's table for a long time. And it just broke today that Halpern is a classic, and this is all alleged, but he is stepping down from his role as an MSNBC contributor. He's a classic uh, sexual harasser, has power, gets to be a senior guy at ABC News. The conduct so far has been alleged to have occurred at ABC News and grabs women, rubs himself up against them, uh, sexually assaults them. I mean, is, is a, is a dirtbag, is, is a dirtbag. This is entirely unsurprising, right? We've there's more of this in the industry. The news business, as I've been telling you in particular, is rife with this kind of stuff, and they're just beginning to scratch the surface. I'm also going to wonder aloud when, if ever, some of the uh, and you could call them open secrets in my industry, some of the uh, same sex misconduct and harassment that has occurred in the industry. I wonder when that will come out. There are some hosts that have yet to get any attention who are widely known to hit on people of the same sex, even when that person is not themselves uh, same sex attracted. I just wonder if there'll be any enthusiasm for that story from the major networks that are breaking all this now because sexual harassment is about power we can all start with that and with that in mind so Halpern had power over young women and he was gross and I should note that uh, Emily Miller whom I worked with a few times back in my days at the blaze called out publicly Halpern and said go back so Emily Miller was a Washington Times columnist. I'm not sure who she's with now. Big gun rights advocate. Very sharp. A very sharp young lady. And she, or, I mean, she's, I think, my age. But anyway, or I, I shouldn't guess her age. What, the point is, she's very sharp. And she said that Halpern was very nasty to her during an exchange on Morning Joe. And I watched the clip and it's clear he's goading her. And it's because he had previously harassed her at ABC News, according to Emily Miller. So uh, this is all this is breaking all over the place. You'll see more of these stories and you will also begin to see stories, I think, if you have not already, of what also occurs in this industry, this media business that is not nearly as uh, well. It's not discussed anywhere near as much, which is sexual favoritism, that there are people who all of a sudden develop a relationship with the boss, with the executive producer, with the head of the channel, or, you know, with the anchor who's running the show, male and female. This is going both ways. What are we to make of that? What is that conduct supposed to fall into in terms of our uh, acceptance of it or not as a society? How would you feel if at your company somebody was sleeping with the boss? Like I said, this happens in my business, male and female, and I know of it on both ends. But if that person gets the promotion or gets the big job, are we all supposed to think that that's fine? It's not sexual harassment, but it is favoritism. It is 
unethical. And in a workplace environment, it's very problematic. There is a that is that sexual favoritism that I'm talking about is rampant in media, including the news business, certainly in Hollywood. And you won't hear those stories because they're not criminal matters, obviously, but they are unethical. And I just want to put out there that I'm wondering if people are going to start to talk about that as a side note to the much bigger issue of sexual predatory behavior and all and all the rest of what's coming out right now, the Weinstein effect. But as I started talking to you, the Weinstein effect has some uh, troubling, some troubling future undertones. And we've already we've seen the first instance of this. I have known from the very beginning that this would be used as a weapon by the left to go after conservatives, uh, that conservatives will be treated much more harshly. I mean, Weinstein is is about the worst of the worst, right? But some of the conservatives that the left is trying to compare Weinstein to, I'm like, well, this is, you're literally comparing somebody accused of serial felony criminal violations to somebody who is acting inappropriately. The span of what we talk about now from sexual harassment to sexual assault to rape is uh, is a very there's a very wide breadth of activity that falls under all of that and a lot of times one is not in the same universe as the other in terms of how wrong how egregious it is right we shouldn't be talking about people who make a uh, an unwanted comment in the workplace in the same sentence as somebody who's actually physically forcing himself on someone and attacking them right this is like saying yeah somebody who is a, is a jaywalker is just they're a criminal the same way that a bank robber is a criminal. No, that's that's unfair. And so I just want to caution that we should always be very clear separating what is civil sexual harassment from what is sexual assault and even rape, which are criminal matters, and make sure that these don't just all get talked about in as though it's all the same because it's not all the same. And there are going to be some people caught up in the machinery of leftist outrage now at the culture of sexual harassment that they knew about for years, I should know, for decades. Everyone knew about Weinstein. They didn't do anything about it. People know about these other directors. Their names are coming out now. They didn't do anything about it. They're jumping on the bandwagon now because the coast is pretty much clear. And also now it's an opportunity to virtue signal. Now that there's no cost, it's easy to stand tall and be so against sexual harassment. But there is a, a case that has finally come to light that, look, very rarely do I come on this show, and, and I'm, I'm angry. And this actually really, this really set me off. Uh, I, I don't know George H.W. Bush, but I will just say, he, he reminds me of uh, a little bit of my maternal grandfather, who was as honorable and uh, forthright and dignified a man, a very, very religious fellow as well, very, very Catholic, uh, but as honorable, forthright and dignified a man as you'll find anywhere, served his country in World War II on the USS Bataan. And I just remember in his latter years, he passed away a few years ago, occasionally he would, he would blurt out something you know, because he was he was in a state of deterioration. I mean, he had reached the point where it was getting very, very hard for him, you know, day to day life. And he would say something 
And, you know, maybe it would be a little bit uh, of salty language or and I just knew that he had gotten old and I felt very as his grandson and he had a lot of grandchildren and, and, and my mom and her siblings to take care of him. So he was always very well attended to. But I always felt very uh, protective of him in the sense that once or twice, you know, somebody was a, was a guest of mine and, and heard him say something that was just, you know, he would he would maybe he would curse or something. And they would think, oh, that's and I was very defensive about it. No, no, he's he's he was you know, way up there in age and he didn't have all that much time left and things had started to go a little bit. And so when I see what's happened with and so this just reminds me of it. This is what gets me so angry because I remember and I remember my grandfather being a a really honorable guy and in the end he just was he was sick his body was deteriorating and his mind was deteriorating George H.W. Bush also served his country was president of the United States and before that he had served in the armed forces he is a uh, a fellow who has now been called out for sexual assault and I remember seeing the headline I think to myself what I mean, could this have been 20 or 30 years ago? Oh, no. There are actresses now who are going out there giving interviews about how George H.W. Bush groped them. And the Huffington Post and these other just disgusting sewer sites uh, are, are running with this as a news story. I saw it on CNN as well. And here is what here is what they said about what happened here uh, second woman george hw bush groped me earlier this week this is from deadspin another sewer site earlier this week actress heather lynn said in a now deleted instagram post that former president george hw bush had sexually assaulted her he touched me from behind from his wheelchair with his wife barbara bush by his side he told me a dirty joke and then all the while being photographed touched me again that is not the end of things. Jordana Grolnick, a New York actress, has a story that doesn't sound very different at all. I got sent the Heather Lynn story by many people this morning, and I'm afraid that mine is entirely similar. They're, they're accusing the former president of groping them. And here is what, I mean, before I get into just what, a, what an outrage and what pathetic, what pathetic little virtue signaling cowards are out there now. Oh, piling on to George H.W. Bush is somehow, uh, you know, a, a predator. A statement by the office of George H.W. Bush. At age 93, okay, he's 93 years old, everybody. President Bush has been confined to a wheelchair for roughly five years, so his arm falls on the lower waist of people with whom he takes pictures. To try to put people at ease, the president routinely tells the same joke and on occasion, he has patted women's rears in what he intended to be a good-natured manner. Some have seen it as innocent. Others clearly view it as, an, as inappropriate. To anyone who he has offended, President Bush apologizes sincerely. Uh, I'm sorry. I mean, I know that that's the statement that under the circumstances they're going to make. The president shouldn't apologize to anybody. I have to, you know, I have to give Andrea Mitchell at MSNBC credit here. She tweeted out in response to all this, Mrs. Bush was at his side, he's in a wheelchair, and has Parkinson's disease. Really? Someone should be ashamed, and it isn't 41. 
this is what's going to happen now. This is a harbinger of things to come. First of all, it is it is an outrage. It is an absolute outrage that some idiots out there are running with a story about a man who's literally suffering from Parkinson's disease and in a wheelchair and can't control his hand and is trying to make light of the fact that his body is deteriorating and he does not have that much time left and some airheads out there are saying that he sexually assaulted them? And these news organizations? Oh, he sexually assaulted... But this is, this is what's going to happen now. They, they feel like there is a... A critical mass they can weaponize this notion of sexual assault and use it not to clear out sexual assault oh no trust me there are more weinsteins and halperns and others right now out there and they're probably in very important powerful positions in the media and they employ many of the same people and i'm even willing to say some of the same people who are so vocal about how grotesque all the sexual harassment is they're engaging in it themselves and they just know that now's an opportunity to try to score some virtue points in public. But mark my words, it started off with Weinstein, but now there is this wave of outrage and they are going to use it for partisan purposes. They are going to direct this at people for the most minor offenses as a way of destroying their reputations ruining the respect that they have of their fellow men and women in this country and they're going to do it because they don't like what they stand for or what they believe george hw bush reminds me of my grandpa before he passed away and if somebody had said that in his final months you know that that he that his hand had fallen low on their waist and he had made an inappropriate joke and thought that that was sexual assault i would have lost my mind on them. All right, going to a break. I'll be right back. I didn't think you had it in you. I'm your huckleberry. Why, Johnny Ringo. You look like somebody just walked over your grave. I'm sure many of you will recognize that uh, immortal line from the movie Tombstone starring uh, Kurt Russell and Val Kilmer, as well as uh, Michael Bine there playing Johnny Ringo, now, that's not the uh, scene that is the shootout at the OK Corral. That actually occurs the very, uh, towards the very end of the movie. Uh, but I'm talking about it because today is, in fact, the anniversary. October 26th of 1881 is when that now legendary shootout occurred at the OK Corral in Tombstone, Arizona. So it was back in 1881. Silver had been discovered a few years before. And so Tombstone became something of a boom town, which comes across in the movie Tombstone when the sheriff Behan says, this is going to be about as fancy as San Francisco in a few years. Well, that ended up not being the case. Tombstone, not quite as uh, elite and well-moneyed as San Francisco, uh, but it did go through a short boom period because of the uh, mining riches nearby. So Wyatt Earp shows up with his uh, two brothers, and they decide, they being his brothers Virgil and Morgan, uh, that they're going to try and get involved in some local businesses. And and people, in, in looking back on the history of it, said that they, they were ambitious fellows, uh, but Wyatt had previously worked as a police officer in Kansas and also uh, as a security guard for a, a bank 
back in the Midwest. And his brothers, well, one of his brothers became the town marshal, uh, Virgil. And that then leads us to the problem with the Clantons and the McLowrys, who were cowboys, uh, who were local toughs and involved in thievery and murder and cattle rustling. They lived on a ranch outside the, t- the town of Tombstone. And it was on the morning of October 25th that you had uh, Ike Clanton, Tom McClowry, head into Tombstone. And they heard that there had been some uh, rough stuff between the Earps and some of their some of the Clanton McClowry gang. And so around 2 or 3 p.m., or no, it was actually 3 p.m. in the afternoon, you had the Earps, all three of them, uh, Wyatt and his brothers, and Doc Holliday, who was played incredibly well by Val Kilmer in the movie Tombstone, which is way better than the Kevin Costner version called Wyatt Earp. Uh, but you had them all gather up in a, a vacant lot that was behind the OK Corral, and it's actually my, my uh, uncle's been to the the scene of the gunfight. It's a small area, and the whole gunfight only lasted uh, less than a minute. About a few dozen shots fired, and I think it was over in you know, thirty or forty seconds. And uh, there were a lot of a lot of them were wounded. Some were killed. Both of the both of Wyatt's brothers were shot, but not uh, severely injured. And Doc Holliday took a graze wound, but was he thought he was shot through. And Wider stood still, according to your accounts from the time, and uh, did not get hit with a single bullet. And uh, a couple of the uh, the cowboys, uh, they did not live to see another day. Doc Holliday dusted one of them, and Wyatt Earp took out another. Uh, he took uh, he took out Billy Clanton right in the chest. Holliday took out Tom McClowry. So today is, uh, for those of you who like a little bit of Western history, the anniversary of the shootout, October 26, 1881, the famous shootout at the OK Corral. With that, we're going to roll into a a quick break. I'll be back in just a few. I have fond memories of Georgetown University. I, I didn't go there, although technically I got some graduate credit in an international relations Class when I was still an undergrad, but that's a whole other story. That was through Georgetown University. But I lived in the neighborhood of Georgetown, and my younger brother, who is uh, just a brilliant and amazing guy in every way, he was a Georgetown student while I was at the CIA as a young CIA analyst uh, doing my thing over at Langley. But I lived right next to campus. I've told you before that I lived very close to the steps where The Exorcist uh, finishes, where the movie finishes. Very eerie, an incredibly good uh, choice of, of, for that scene. But I, I live right tucked up against Georgetown University, which for a 23, 24-year-old guy to uh, be right next to a university, be able to use all their facilities. I used to sneak onto campus and use their athletic facilities. I think technically I was allowed to do that, but I'm not sure if that was really true or not. Um, and and I may have once or twice found myself at a at a keg party. Uh, that that may have happened. I can neither confirm nor deny. You know, I mean, my my brother is a few years younger, but uh, you know, I'm 24, 25. You know, the seniors are 22. So you know, sometimes you might find yourself at a at a keg party at campus. You know, no, no neither here nor there. Uh, so anyway, I have fond memories of, of Georgetown, uh, even though I never went there as a student. And I think it's a, a pretty 
wonderful school in terms of being in that area, being Washington, D.C. Uh, I often tell my family that if I could go back in time, I did apply to Georgetown. I thought very seriously about going. If I could apply uh, or if I go back in time, I think I would take Georgetown over Amherst because I was okay with Amherst, but I would give it for me. It was a B experience, maybe B minus overall. Uh, I didn't hate it. I just didn't love it. Uh, it got pretty tiresome to be in a tiny campus that's freezing for such a long period of the year. Uh, anyway, I'm telling you about this because Georgetown's in the news. And Georgetown has a student group called Love Saxa, which is a traditional marriage. And you could even just say a traditional Orthodox Catholic group. I know there's Orthodox Christianity, which is the Eastern Orthodox Church, but I mean a doctrinal Catholicism. And this group, Love Saxa, has been in the news because they uh, wrote an editorial, someone associated with the group wrote an editorial about how they advocate for marriage between a man and a woman. And sure enough, no surprise here, the LGBTQ groups on campus, Pride, Queer People of Color, and others have taken to the Georgetown student publication and the Georgetown student government to try not just to shout down this Love Saxa group on Georgetown University's campus as bigots, that we can almost, we knew that was going to happen, but they want them to be officially declared a hate group by the student body, uh, and they want to defund them. So they want to take away their money. They want to kick them out of the public square. They want no, uh, they want there to be no official recognition of this group by Georgetown University. And there's a lot of student groups that are behind this. Now, there's a couple of levels here. The first one, of course, is what a bunch of intolerant snowflakes that they think that there's not allowed to be any other ideas than what they have. That's not new and not in any way singular to Georgetown. What is different about Georgetown and what makes this case so interesting to me as somebody who went to a Jesuit high school that was pretty serious about actually being a Catholic school and went to a Catholic school before that that was certainly culturally Catholic, although not really doctrinal uh, from a doctrine perspective, all that Catholic. Uh, but Georgetown is a Catholic university. There are Jesuits wandering the campus and the Catholic Church has not budged an inch on the whole notion of same-sex marriage or abortion or any of these things. And here we are, students who are attending a Catholic university are being uh, mocked, ridiculed, threatened, and defamed because they have the opinions that are in line with the Catholic Church. It's like we're living in an alternate universe here. Now, many of you would say that Georgetown is about as Catholic as Nancy Pelosi. And I would say that that's true. Uh, Georgetown is not known for being a particularly Catholic of the Catholic universities out there, but that it has that affiliation. This just really says a lot that it is still officially considered a Catholic school and a student group could get in so much trouble and not have the Jesuits and the university rally to their cause. Quite the opposite. I think they may lose out here. I think they may get defunded by the student body. I think the uh, intolerant left at Georgetown is going to get its way and they will be hunting heretics in a Catholic university. And the heresy that they're hunting is, in fact, 
Catholic doctrine. Can't be a Catholic at Catholic schools anymore, everybody. That's the bottom line. That's the lesson that we all have to take from this. Not in, not in America 2017, it seems. But I will say Georgetown still very charming streets and some very cute little restaurants and houses. So go check it out sometime. One of my favorite places in the whole country, the neighborhood. And with that, I will be right back with some Teen Buck Speaks. Welcome back, team. It's time for what is uh, certainly a favorite segment of mine, Team Buck Speaks, where I get to read off your messages from Facebook, Facebook, uh, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Those of you who are podcast listeners or if you listen to the show on demand or on delay a bit later than when we air live, uh, this is a great way for you to have your voice heard. We take suggestions, comments, poems, uh, descriptive literary devices of, of all kinds. Uh, we, we welcome it here and we'll try to get through as many of them as we can so that as many of you as possible uh, get to have your thoughts aired here on the show because I call you team because this is a group effort and I really do uh, thank you for all of the thoughts and, and all of the effort you put into helping me make this a better show. So with that, let's get into it. Uh, we have John writing in, Buck, I don't know if this is where your radio listener messages message you, but I'll give it a try. And obviously it is, John, because you're on air now. Uh, here it is. I am very cynical about Bill and Hillary or the Dems facing any serious legal challenges about anything anymore. Impotent cowards seem to be all those in the Republican Party of which I left a long time ago. I'm now unaffiliated. Love your history segment at the end of the program. Well, John, thank you so much. I'm really glad you enjoyed little history stories and history deep dives that we do here on the show. Uh, more of those are certainly coming. And in terms of your cynicism about Bill and Hillary actually facing any punishment, uh, I completely agree with you. I, I think it is very unlikely. And I know that right now this does not get people fired up. And as a pure business model, it's better to suggest that it's any day now Hillary is going to get indicted. Uh, it won't happen. If it happens, uh, I would be absolutely shocked. This Russia collusion stuff, the people involved with the Fusion GPS and also with the Uranium One scandal, they have been covering their tracks and they have been operating all along, I think. Many of them have been operating in what will just be uh, washed away as indiscretions or operating in a gray area. This is what the Clintons excel at. They are in a class by themselves when it comes to corruption. All right, now we have Bill writing in, my wife is Samoan. She had an aunt named Moana who recently died of old age. My wife thinks it's ridiculous that if a young white, black, Hispanic or Asian girl wants to dress up as Moana for Halloween, that it's cultural appropriation. Our kids, half Samoan, half redneck, dressed up as characters from the movie Frozen and Harry Potter the last two Halloweens. Nobody cried about cultural appropriation. This is garbage or uh, bovine excrement, if you choose to read this on air. Don't worry, William. I decided to uh, change up your verbiage a little bit here so that it would be family-friendly. Uh, but yes, indeed, I completely agree with you. This whole costume, Halloween costume, cultural appropriation 
uh, theme or uh, this whole method of argument that's out there is just complete blather. It is piffle. It is a waste of everyone's time. But it just goes to show that the left is not only uh, vicious and self-contradictory, but the American left is also humorless. And this is because humor is, in part, a, it's a form of freedom, right? The ability to laugh at things, the ability to let yourself uh, feel free of the need to bow and scrape and uh, always be afraid of what others will think. Laughter is its own freedom, and that's why the left hates it. And now we have another Will who writes in, uh, when did you tape S.E. Cup's show? Uh, my girl and I are watching you on there. Didn't realize it was taped. Also, when did uh, S.E. become this lefty? Ne- uh, knew she was never Trump, but darn, you're surrounded by a libertarian, a uh, feminist, a Clintonista, and S.E. Uh, dude, you're trying to hold your tongue so bad. We're watching it and laughing. The guy sitting next to you is spewing uh, bovine excrement nonstop. Uh, yes, as some of you may may pick up, there are times when I may be on television because I can tape uh, different shows, and and also obviously that I'm on I'm on my radio show later. But the magic of TV allows you to do a show uh, earlier in the day, and then you can air it. Uh, and so that's you know depending on the show and depending on the schedule. But that that's neither here nor there. Uh, the Reality of that table? I don't know. I will leave it to the folks who watched it. Uh, I am the only, I was certainly the only Trump supporter there. Essie is a dear friend and she is uh, doing a great job with the show. And I will just leave it at that. In terms of what the other panelists say, that's all for you to, that's all for you to decide. Now, Scott writes in with the following Shields High Brother, just a quick note. This Russia play by the libs is the same play they pulled out during the election against Mitt. If you remember, they had Reid go out on the Senate floor and slander Mitt, which cost him votes, admitted by Reid that that was the purpose of his lie. No different than what they pulled on Trump, only they lost, and now may, with any luck, pay, all in caps. Keep up the great work. Well, Scott, thank you so much for your message and uh, your your avatar photo here of you with what looks like a largemouth bass, uh, lovely fish. I would just say that I do not think there'll be consequences for the Clintons, as I have already stated in this segment. Um, but yes, the, the left is willing to play very dirty, and that includes politicians in the Democrat Party who will just blatantly lie so that they can do damage to their Republican opponents. Harry Reid is a perfect example of it, but there are many others as well. All right, Richard writes in, I'm a podiatrist and I know all about Jones fractures, having repaired them surgically. I'd be willing to look at any x-rays you might have and give you, a, give you an opinion on that and your ankle. Pretty easy to confirm my credentials. You've given me a lot of enjoyment over the years, my chance to reciprocate. Well, Richard, that is a very, very kind offer. Thank you for that. Uh, I'm going to try to stay out of any medical procedure for my ankle or foot for a while now. Um, but if, if the pain flares up too badly, I, I may just have to reach out and say, hey, maybe take a look at this. What do you think? Um, and then he also writes uh, regarding blockchain. I vote yes. I own a little Bitcoin and I have an interest. Oh, Richard. Well, good for you, because if you bought Bitcoin, especially anything over a year or two ago, it has just 
gone to the moon in terms of price. It is really high right now. I wish I, I mean, it kind of it kind of kills me. I, I sit here. I'm like, if I had just spent a couple of hundred bucks on Bitcoins back in 2009, 2010, when I first heard about it, I would be, uh, well, let's just say the Freedom Hut would probably be a mobile platform from inside my G6. Uh, instead, I am very fortunate to have a lovely studio, but it is not, in fact, in a private jet. More on blockchain here. Brandon writes, uh, count me in on the blockchain convo. I would like to hear more. Uh, Corinna and let me just say that, yes, I am. Plan- We're going to do a deep dive on blockchain. I know it's outside of what you'll hear from conservative hosts and you know on radio shows. It's fascinating. And I'm telling you, it, it is it is an enormous uh, it, it is an enormous change in our whole economy that is just looming over the horizon because of this. It, it look, it could destroy the entirety of what we think or not destroy, but replace much of the financial services sector and banking. Think about that. It, the, 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 the applications for blockchain are mind-boggling, and the technology is already there. This is not theoretical technology. All right, so back to, so yes, blockchain is coming. And now back to Corinna. Uh, she just writes, oh, wow, here we go. She writes a lot. Buck, I enjoy your show very much. Your show is my go-to to get me through Atlanta traffic on my Wednesday delivery route. What I don't enjoy is listening by podcast. The audio sound level is inconsistent, which leaves me constantly turning the volume up and down. If I don't remember to quickly turn the volume down before pre-recorded intros, I almost get blasted out of the van before they end. Sometimes when you lower your voice, I have a term. Okay, so there's problems with the audio here. It doesn't seem to matter which platform I use to listen. Um, I hope you can address this technical issue on the podcasts. B, uh, BTW, Corinna says, love the history deep dives. Uh, well, Corinna, I will have the team here take a look at. But yeah, so we will uh, we will take a look at the podcast and figure out what's going on with that. Becky writes in oh, uh, Becky writes in the following Buck, Love the show. Been a fan since the blaze. Yes. On the deep dives into history and yes to diving into blockchain. I learn something new every time I listen to your show while I am cooking uh, vegan. Oh, wow. Vegan cooking uh, dinner for the family each night. And I love it. I know a lot of research and hard work goes into each uh, segment and it shows. Thank you. And shields high. Well, Becky, thank you so much. You know, I, look, there are some people that are able to just go on radio and be like, you know, this morning I had this thing for breakfast and uh, yeah, you know, that guy I just saw the headline about, uh, you know, he's uh, not so good. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I love Trump and I hate uh, Democrats. And, uh, all right, let's take some calls. Some people can do that, and it works for them. I know that you have already had a chance to read and watch TV and hear things on radio before I come on air or before you listen to me, whenever it is. And that's why I, I take so much time and effort to make sure that I'm telling you things that as much as I can that you will not have heard elsewhere or it's a different take, a different angle and and hopefully more information rich and dense because look i i greatly value your time and all of you who listen to the show are the reason that i have a show uh, and it is something that keeps me going day in and day out because this is a it's a, it's a tough business just media in general um, not just radio tv trying to write all these different things and as i think everyone is becoming more aware as a lot of these stories uh come out about different news outlets that are having trouble that are folding including uh 
my the the, the problems at my former employer, the Blaze, uh, where you know there have been some some tough times. It's just really difficult to make it in this business, and it's uh, all a function of does your audience really value it, and do you value your audience? So that's what I will leave you all with today. Uh, I certainly value all of you, and I thank you for your time, and I thank you for spreading the word about this show. Looking forward to a Freestyle Friday on the morrow. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Follow me there and send me your thoughts. Until tomorrow, shields high.